Hello, and welcome back to One Conversation, the podcast where we believe one conversation can change a life. As a reminder, you can rate and subscribe our podcast. We'd love to hear how much you're loving the content we have. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. In this episode, we're going to kick off the month talking about coercive control, which experts have said is the foundation of almost all domestic abuse relationships. Coercive control is also referred to as intimate terrorism due to the complex, insidious, and often subtle nature of how this is carried out. This issue ties in with a lot of different types of DV abuse that we've talked about in previous episodes because there's several working parts to it. And we're going to go through all of that today. There's a lot that goes into this. There's a lot to mm-hmm. chat about and understand. Listener discretion will be advised as we will be chatting about domestic violence and how some of these things can look in a relationship. So make sure you're ca- taking care of yourself as needed. And a shout out to domesticshelters.org and Healthline, as a lot of the information we will be sharing today has come from articles and research they have put out on the topic. And also, if you did not see our new logo, let's chat about that for a minute. Thank you, Mm domesticshelters.org, for our purple ribbon. We are nationally award-winning here on One Conversation. So I want to give a special kudos to Lisa. She does so much. I would say nearly all of the work on this podcast. I just show up and (laughs) show up and shine. (laughs) Work off the content that she has laid on a silver platter for us. So Lisa, congratulations. Thank you, Brie. That's so sweet. And of course, again, you really do show up and shine as well as all of the hosts and guests we have on the show. So honestly, it's a pleasure. This is my baby. I love being here as do you. So yeah, thank you, domesticshelters.org. That was definitely meant a lot to us. Um, But kind of back to the matter at hand here. So if you've listened to previous episodes, you're going to notice that a lot of the topics and types of abuse that we have covered in the past are going to be falling under this umbrella of how we define coercive control. This is, like Brie mentioned, super complex. There's a lot to unpack here, which is why we're really excited, especially to kind of kick off our Domestic Violence Awareness Month episodes, just really going into this. So where do we start? I mean, let's just define what is coercive control. We define this as a pattern of intentional and strategic emotional or psychological abuse that is based on control, manipulation, and oppressing the victim to limit their freedom. This can include physical abuse as well, but generally emotional and psychological abuse are used because it's more subtle and it's easier for the abuser to gain a deeper sense of power and control. We've mentioned that, I mean, So many times we've echoed that throughout all of our episodes talking about intimate partner violence. The motivation is always that power and control. So also within coercive control relationships, intermittent reinforcement is used. This can look like kind of having subtle moments of positives or moments where the perpetrator of this is kind of bringing the victim back up a little bit. So it's not just all bad, right? It's not all just um, abusive things going on or put downs happening. There's little kind of glimpses of hope within those relationships. And this is used to really kind of reel the victim back in 
maybe make them question their own thoughts or feelings about the relationship, right? Like they're seeing little good moments and well, it can't be all bad or they're not a, you know, this isn't a bad relationship. There's some moments of good. So often victims in these situations, they can tend to feel like hostages, and that is due to constant monitoring, which might be happening, um, you know, them being grilled or questioned about things, maybe stalking going on in these relationships. So it can kind of start to seem like an inescapable pattern or routine. And we're going to talk about um, those things a little bit more, too, is in terms of, you know, the monitoring, things like that that are happening. And this is also something that's not new. So the term coercive control was coined by Dr. Evan Stark, who is an international expert in intimate partner violence. And he actually coined this back in the 70s. So I know personally, I have seen this come up more often, kind of as of recent, right? We're kind of hearing that term a little bit more, but it's definitely been around for quite a while. And it's also very, very pervasive. So a study done by the Domestic Violence Prevention Society in Canada reported that 95% of domestic violence victims experienced coercive control. And so that is why this is so important to talk about, right? Like there's a lot to unpack. It's kind of hard to recognize or really understand. And we know that it's almost um, a foundation for a lot of domestic violence relationships to occur because it's so subtle, because it's so hard to pick up on. And we're, again, going to uh, really dive into why that happens throughout this episode as well. Yeah, I wish everyone could see my eyebrows when you said that 95%, although I shouldn't really be that shocked by that because mm-hmm. it is such a, I don't like to phrase it like this, but a useful tactic from people who cause harm, right? Yeah. It's something that they are very good at and that works very well when they yeah, are totally. using it on their victims. So let's talk about who is really at risk. Anyone can be a victim of coercive control in a relationship, but it is most common in heterosexual relationships with the dynamic of male being the perpetrator and female being the victim. Research has shown that about one in three women who experience domestic violence have experienced coercive control compared to about one in 20 male victims of domestic violence having experienced it. Leading researchers and experts on this topic equate that to many culturally sexist ideas. So this is where men dominate women in relationships, and that often women tend to be raised to people-please and idealize romantic love as being of the utmost importance. So they aim to please and do anything to make a relationship work, even if it's going along with things that they may initially feel like is wrong or they shouldn't be doing, but they want to people please, especially their partner, because that's what culture has been telling them is right and what Mm -hmm. they should be doing. Should in big quotation marks there. It's important to reiterate again that anyone, regardless of gender or sexual orientation, can be a victim of this as it is common in almost all domestic violence relationships. So how is coercive control played out? What does it look like? Why is it so hard for victims to recognize? Let's go over some signs and patterns of how this actually looks in relationships. 
Yeah. And there's going to be a lot to kind of dive into here. And of course, we're going to share, I think, some of the most commonly used tactics or the most easy to recognize. Uh, there is probably some outside of this list, but I just wanted to preference by saying that. But the first sign or tactic used we're going to cover is isolation. And if you've listened to other episodes we've talked about on, you know, any domestic violence topics, you have heard us just go over how important isolation is in unhealthy or abusive relationships. I mean, it is really such a key, right? And we've also said the phrase, violence thrives in silence. So isolation, it can be very subtle in these relationships. It can look like maybe uh, a partner suggesting that they have a shared phone or shared social media accounts. And maybe they're kind of marketing it, right? Like this is going to be more convenient for us. It'll lower the bill, right? Or the cost of the phone because we're sharing it. Or maybe it's cute, right? Like all these couples now, they all have their joint Facebook and Instagram accounts. And that could be the way that it maybe it's marketed at first. But if this is someone who you know, is an abuser, that might be intentionally done as a way to monitor, right? Maybe they're monitoring communication. Maybe they are screening phone calls or just messages that are going out so they can, you know, kind of have a an idea and an understanding, and a little bit of control on who that victim speaks to or the messages that they actually get to see. It can also look like moving away from family and friends, so it's hard to connect with them and hard to have that support system. Uh, another way this might be marketed at first is, you know, maybe we're taking this big step together. We're going to build a new life, and that's why we're, you know, kind of going off on our own and getting away from our family and people around us when, yeah, in reality, it could just be essentially taking that support system out of the picture, right, or just making it hard for them to reach out and connect in case things go wrong, or if, you know, they start having qualms within the relationship, they want to reach out and discuss with somebody else. It can also look like just monitoring calls or texts with family. Uh, this could be even done by cutting off the Wi-Fi, unplugging the router, right? Or if someone tries to intervene in that situation, maybe they're overhearing a phone call. Yeah, that's the opportune time to unplug the phone. So this could all be very, very, uh, again, subtly done at first, right? And I'm not saying that, you know, if anyone has a partner out there that suggested moving away and starting a new life or like suggested a joint account is absolutely doing it for these reasons. Like, no, that's not always the case. But again, these are just some subtle ways that these things can kind of start to be implanted in a relationship that might not be as noticeable, but could also become very, very detrimental for that person later on. And the last thing I'll mention here is even just convincing that family and friends don't like you, right? Like, let's say your partner starting to say that, you know, your family and friends are nasty people. They don't even like you. They don't want to talk to you. That could be another way of cutting that person off from, again, any outside support as well. I have a couple notes on that before we move to the next tactic. First one is in talking about isolation, I so often think of my work here in Alpine County because sometimes people will be surprised that there actually is an office for domestic violence in a county as small as Alpine. If you're yeah. not familiar, the last census, I believe that was the 2010 census is when this data is from, but it only had 1,200 people in the entire county. Wow. So very, very small and people are surprised that we stay busy here, but that's part of what makes domestic violence so complicated and so common in rural areas is that 
there's isolation here. There is plenty of isolation here. And when domestic violence happens here, it's not, not that domestic violence is ever simple, cut and dry, but oh man, it is not here. (laughs) Right. Even, yeah, in areas where you think about neighbors not being even close by, right? I mean, even if something were to happen, like an altercation in the home, just that isolation geographically, you know, how big of an impact that can have because there's no one around to maybe overhear anything, right? Or see anything's occurring. Right, right. No one to hear anything. My second thought is I just had a quick little story to share about my own personal experience being a survivor of teen dating violence Uh, on that note of convincing that friends and family don't like you, don't want to talk to you. I specifically have this memory that my partner called my best friend at the time a one-eye green monster and somehow – used that description to say that she was so ugly. I needed to not hang out with her. She was this one-eyed great monster and was this horrible thing in my life. I needed to get rid of her. And because I was under coercive control from him, guess what I did? I absolutely did that. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about this and it seems a little unrealistic that people would actually fall under this, this was me. Just to throw that out there also, that this is very real. The next tactic we're going to talk about is monitoring your activity throughout the day. So there's a career trial attorney and expert in criminal law. Her name is Wendy Patrick. She stated that abusers pursue coercive control through attempts to make themselves omnipresent. Essentially, they are everywhere and anywhere their victims are. This monitoring may be done by wiring the house with cameras or recording devices, tracking your phone location, tracking your car or whereabouts using monitoring devices the victim may or may not be aware of, such as air tags. And I think there's a few other devices that are out there now trying to catch up to Apple on that. Mm -hmm. There are so many possibilities now. They could be easily left in a car, a purse, etc. without the victim knowing. They could be attached to the car underneath. You know, when's the last time I looked under my car? Never. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so I would have no idea if something was under there. And I think that goes for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. The monitoring allows the abuser to have added elements of control. And if the victim is aware of the monitoring, it becomes a reminder to them that their abuser is watching them at all times. And this is actually something that came up in California legislature recently because they were trying to come out with electric license plates that would have tracking on them. Interesting. And I, I'm on the policy council for the, the California partnership, and we said, whoa, 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 I don't think so. I don't <laughs> care how much money you might make off of this. Giving a really easy tactic for abusers to follow their victims on their own car, and they don't have to install anything extra. It's a part of their license plate. No, thank you. Red flags. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So these things are coming out all of the time, and it's so important for us to be aware of it and to talk about it because we don't want anyone being followed with or without their knowledge. Yeah. 
And think about too, I mean, all of those things you mentioned, right? Like cameras outside the house or, um, you know, even the security cameras in the house, like the Nest doorbells, the ring door cams, all of that stuff. I mean, yeah, those are really interesting things. They can provide this air of safety, especially when we're not at home, but also thinking about how someone who, you know, has the capacity to commit harm against their partner, what they can use them for, right? And and that could even be marketed to that victim, right? Like, oh, we, we definitely should get a camera. You know, I've been seeing a lot of things on the news about houses being broken into, and I want to keep us and our stuff safe. So I would like to put up a camera outside the garage or, you know, one's in the home because we have kids. And so easily that can turn into them watching them coming and going from the garage, them watching and seeing if anyone comes up to the door, if they go and leave at any point or what they're doing even within the home, right? So I think all of that is just really good to keep in mind. It's not to be like a scare tactic, but it's it's just something I think that we should kind of keep as a reference point, right? Or just keep, um, I don't know, keep at the forefront of our minds about some of these things and how they can be misused in that way. Yeah, great points. Next up on the list of tactics is denying the victim freedom and autonomy. The abuser might control freedom of movement and independence by not allowing the victim to go to work or school, restricting access to transportation, stalking or monitoring movement or location while you're out, taking your phone or changing passwords so you don't have access. So you can see in this list of tactics, there are so many different things that can be done that can really be pervasive in every aspect of the victim's life. And so I'll say it again, it's so important to be talking about this and to bring awareness of it, because if we aren't talking about it, then the the violence is thriving in silence. Absolutely. And I think too, it's really hard to understand like how much of your freedom's been taken away if you're in it, right? If you're like in the relationship, you're going through the motions of it, going through that cycle, you know, starting off honeymoon, then everything starts to kind of get icky. You don't realize it until you're out, you know? And I think for a lot of people maybe listening, they could think or say to themselves like that would never happen. I would recognize that so easily. I wouldn't put up with that. Someone telling me, you know, I can't work or I can't go to school. Uh, but again, when you're in it and there's so many other levels of manipulation and coercion, justifications and minimizing, right? It's it's really hard to see. It, it, I think it takes you being out of that situation to realize how much freedom we actually really should have, right? And we're like entitled to have for ourselves to really put that in full perspective as well. So I wanted to just touch on that, right? Because I don't want it to seem like this is really like far disconnected or this is something that only happens to certain people. Because again, the way these patterns, and these relationships work, you know, like I have been there, Brianna has been there, so many other people <laughs> have been there. And it really takes, I think you, yeah, being in the situation, all this occurring, to really, you know, understand how these things are so powerful and how they continue to happen. So the next tactic we're going to touch on is gaslighting. Oof, we did a full episode on what gaslighting sounds like. We provided so many examples throughout that episode. We've defined what it is. So we really encourage you, if you've not checked out that episode yet, go check that out if you want the full picture. But essentially, gaslighting is making a victim question their memory, their reality, version of events. 
uh, it's really doing anything to make them question whether or not like they can even trust in themselves, maybe to recall things, make decisions, any of that. So a good example of this, uh, let's say your partner says when they go home from work, they want to go and see a movie in theaters and they tell you which movie they want to go see. So you think, great, while they're at work, you buy the tickets and when they get home, you present them with the tickets and this partner gets really angry. Maybe they start to scream and yell. Maybe they rip the tickets up. Maybe they start saying like, that wasn't even the movie I said I wanted to see. Are you too stupid to remember? Can you even follow simple directions? Do you even listen to me? Do you care enough to listen? And maybe in this moment, that victim is finding themselves questioning their memory. Like, wait, did I really hear that wrong? Weren't they really saying that? Like, maybe they're having that moment where they're yeah, trying to literally recall the entire conversation. And maybe they're now apologizing. Maybe they are saying how sorry they are and I should have listened better. I don't know how I did this. And now they're getting tickets for that other movie they mentioned, right? This is just, I mean, and that might sound like silly or ridiculous, but that's just like one example I created here to kind of explain what that can look and feel like. Because if you're someone that usually, you know, can trust your memory, can trust your recall and events. If someone, you know, flat out tells you like, no, you're absolutely wrong. That never happened. You're crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. If that starts to happen enough, anyone's going to start to kind of question themselves, right? And this is something, again, it might be subtle. It might start off with little things and then get layered over time until the point where you're constantly questioning yourself. Like you're feeling like you're unreliable, and at that rate as well, it's kind of twofold. Not only do you feel kind of inept and unable to rely on yourself, but maybe it creates that deeper dependence on your partner, right? Because now you're going to them to make sense of things. You're going to them to recall how that happened or what was said or even making decisions. And so that is a big one, I think, to keep in mind. Again, if you want a whole episode on gaslighting, we have it for you. Uh, but just wanted to throw that out there because that's a huge, huge piece of this. So the next tactic is name calling, putting this person down. So yeah, I mean, really, this could look like simple put downs, right? Just telling them things that, you know, really, really hurt them. Frequent criticism. And I'm not talking about the kind of criticism that comes from like loving, well-intended people, right? Because uh, criticism, I think, could be a good thing. You know, if someone cares about you and they're like, hey, you know, I just I see how this could be done differently and make it easier for you. That's that's one thing. We love that. But if it's something that they're not even trying to help you with, it's not even really about making a realistic change. It's really just about kind of tearing you down, reminding you that you're not good enough. Then that's the kind of criticism we're really worried about. And especially, again, if it is frequent. Any kind of bullying behavior can fall under this category. So it's really anything that's designed to kind of make that person feel unimportant make them feel deficient, inadequate. And over time, that's going to have a huge impact on anyone's self-esteem, self-worth, and identity. And when this starts to happen as well, it kind of starts to push the boundaries of that victim, right? Because if they really start to believe, I'm not worthy, then other abusive behaviors may not be acknowledged or addressed. Because in the beginning, maybe they are little put-downs, and maybe they're really... Um, kind of put off like they're really joking, right? Like, oh, don't be so silly. Don't be so sensitive. You know, it's just a joke what I'm saying to you. And over time, if that starts to get a little worse and a little worse, then those boundaries start to get really, really flexible. And so over time, it may have started with something small, 
but as it just continually progressed, maybe my boundaries are so loose now and I'm just allowing so many things that in the beginning of this, maybe I wouldn't have put up with, but over time, that's just become really normalized, right? So maybe other abusive behaviors down the line are not going to be acknowledged or addressed because first and foremost, maybe at this point, it's normal, or maybe they feel like they don't deserve better, especially if they're being told that, right? Or maybe they feel like they're deserving of the abuse because again they most likely are being told that as well so as small as that could seem just little put downs and criticism things like that over time that does play a huge impact our next tactic is limiting their access to money controlling the finances is a way of restricting the victim's freedoms and ability to leave the relationship some ways abusers can exert financial control include placing the victim on a strict, unrealistic budget to just to cover the essentials, limiting access to bank accounts by taking bank cards, not providing transportation to the bank or going there without them, or the abuser keeping the victim's money in their own account, hiding financial resources, preventing the victim from having a credit card, constantly monitoring what the victim spends, And I think about in this too is how common this could be with having children in the picture. And if the abuser doesn't want the children to go to daycare or there isn't even a spot in daycare because that is so common right now, Mm -hmm. then the abuser could force that person, you know, the mom, if she had a career before, nope, now you're here taking care of the kids. You have no other option. I'm not allowing another option. And so then the mom is not earning an income and he then just kind of not gave himself, but exerted more control over the finances because if it was split finances before the child, it is no longer split. And now he has that control and that's just another avenue where this coercive control can come in. So I think about all my stay-at-home moms out there and I, you know, if you're seeing some red flags in your relationship and you couldn't put your kids in daycare to go back to your career to just be thinking about these things and to, to watch out for this. That's a great point. The next one is reinforcing traditional gender roles. And I know that we've been talking about this since it is so common in heterosexual relationships. And so those are you know, those traditional gender roles that culture has defined for us. Regardless of the type of relationship you're in, your partner may try to make distinctions between who functions in the dominant role and who functions in a submissive role in the relationship. So in a heteronormative relationship, they may attempt to justify that women are the homemakers while men are the breadwinners, Again, stay-at-home moms, this is exactly where that leads also. Using this to coerce her into taking care of all the housework and childcare. And like Lisa made the disclaimer earlier, I'm not saying you're a stay-at-home mom, your partner has coercive control over you. That's not what I'm saying. If you already had red flags and then that is just exacerbating the red flags that are present, this could really be something to look further into and maybe chat with your local organization that's similar to Live Violence Free. Have this in mind and have this education and do what you can to gain back your financial freedom that you deserve. Absolutely. 
So the next tactic we're going to look at is turning the kids against you if there are children in the relationship. So we just talked about Bree did a great job kind of mentioning some red flags, especially for moms out there, stay at home moms out there. Um, but yeah, kids in the picture can add a whole new element of control. So a, an abuser may attempt to weaponize the children against the victim by maybe telling the kids that, you know, the victim is a bad parent, taking any example or any instance to really just put that person down, right? And put their, their parenting down. Maybe it's belittling you in front of the children, right? Because that starts to set a standard. We, I mean, we know kids are little sponges. I don't have kids, but I'm around enough kids with my family, my friends who have kids. They are little sponges. And it's absolutely certain that if they start hearing things and seeing things, uh, yeah, that's their normal. That's what they're learning, taking in, right, from their surroundings. And so if there's a lot of belittling, shaming, and, and putting down of one particular parent that's done in front of the kids, it's going to start to give the kids an idea that first and foremost, it's okay to do this, that they must deserve this perhaps, right? Um, a lot of that's probably justified in, in what these conversations sound like as well. And so, yeah, it's going to give the kids an idea, maybe in an error that they might not have to respect that parent as much, right? I mean, that's what they're seeing that, you know, it's it's totally okay to disrespect them. Maybe they are lying to the children about you or maybe they're setting you up to fail, so to speak. So, you know, maybe an instance where one parent um, typically picks the kids up from school, maybe the school contacts, you know, we'll just say for lack of better term and easier explanation, maybe the school calls the abuser, right? And lets them know, hey, there's a different pickup time today. But maybe they don't let the victim know. So when they don't show up or show up at the wrong time, right? And the abuser kind of swoops in and they know the pickup time and they go in and do it. They can tell the kids, well, well, obviously, you know, they didn't find you important enough, right? Like mom didn't find it important enough to be here or, you know, dad just completely didn't care about pickup time today. So I had to come and do it, right? Just kind of an easy way um, to put that parent down, right? Or make them feel, especially in their child's eyes, like, they're not showing up for them, which could have huge effects, especially for that parent, right, who's really trying their best. And this can obviously cause significant issues within the relationship, uh, especially with that parent and that child or children. Just make the victim feel absolutely powerless and even really alone, especially if their children are those primary contacts they have other than the abuser, right? And so a good thing to mention here is that we talked or I spoke earlier about uh, intermittent reinforcement going on in a lot of these relationships, right? So I think a great example to think about here of those little kind of glimpses of hope, uh, you know, let's say there's a lot of this going on, like weaponizing of the children going on in the relationship, but maybe for Mother's Day, the abuser lets, we'll, we'll use the framework model, male perpetrating, female, female victimized Maybe the abuser lets the victim know on Mother's Day, like, you are a great mom and where I'm going to get all the kids together. And even though, you know, I kind of weaponize them every other day of the year, I'm going to bring them all together. We're going to show mom that she's trying her best and we love her, right? And everything's great. Meanwhile, she's, you know, being constantly put down. So that little, that moment of hope, right? That things will get better, that momentary high from the recognition, right? That feeling of safety, security within her motherhood, her role, whatever it is, may be enough to make her question, right? Question whether or not I should power through. I got to keep going and try to make things better. You know, I got to figure out ways to kind of keep showing up 
and, and keep these good feelings going, right? And make sure my kids know that I'm a good parent. So again, a really, really powerful one is, is kids being in the picture. The next tactic is controlling aspects of your health and body. This is a scary and deep form of control since the abuser is directly affecting physical health and well-being, and it can add on to other types of abuse or control. This can look like monitoring how much you sleep or not allowing a certain amount of sleep in general, which being a mom, let me tell you, sleep deprivation is something that can affect (laughs) your psyche and how you function in the everyday world. can only imagine. (laughs) Exhaustion may cause issues with memory and processing, which in return can make gaslighting even more pervasive and powerful. Mm -hmm. I've also heard that if you have... 30 days of interrupted sleep. So you get your eight hours, but it's interrupted. If you have 30 days of that, you can actually have clinical signs of depression. Wow. So sleep deprivation is absolutely something that can affect, like I said, how you go about your day in the world. This can also look like controlling how much or what you are eating or even counting calories for you. Forcing the partner to adhere to a certain exercise regimen, controlling medications you're on, limiting those medications, not allowing the victim to take them, or maybe forcing the victim to take unnecessary meds, all very scary things when you're messing with prescriptions that do not belong to you, were not prescribed to you, that can absolutely be deadly. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, even if you have a perpetrator who has some sort of a medical background, you know, that is very scary. And just thinking about the fear that someone would have, like if I was being dosed with something I didn't know and I just felt off of my normal in any way, just how scary that must be, right? Like thinking yeah. about, you know, where is this coming from and why do I feel so different? Why am I having these these momentary lapses, whatever it is? Like that's just, that's a nightmare. But it could play back into that gaslighting of, oh, you must just be like on your period or something like that, you know? Right. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. I just combined multiple tactics in there by degrading women Mm -hmm. for having a period, (laughs) the gaslighting, the (laughs) how many different tactics can we throw in one example? This can also mean not allowing or deciding for the victim whether or not they can go for medical care. I was recently watching some videos about how COVID affected victims being able to seek medical care. Mm -hmm. When all the appointments went virtual, if you have a perpetrator standing over your shoulder, you're not going to be able to be honest with your medical provider. You know, they'll do their, some do the screening questions of, are you in your, are you safe in your relationship? You know, they'll ask some of those questions and you have to say no to everything right with a smile on your face if you are virtually meeting with a healthcare professional and you know that your abuser is keeping track of this appointment somehow either yeah. right there with you or you don't know if they're recording on your computer there's so many capabilities for that and so now that folks can go back to in person meetings, in-person appointments, Mm -hmm. they're again starting to see a rise in people being able to disclose to their medical providers. 
Next up, making jealous accusations. So this is using jealousy to limit or complain about the time spent with family, friends, both online or offline, or limiting hobbies due to them needing more time from you. And this is a way for an abuser to eliminate or minimize contact with anyone outside of the relationship. So again, how these are all interplaying, this is going back to that isolation tactic. They may also make jealous accusations to simply make you feel guilty or to make you question yourself gaslighting. (laughs) Let's just make a basket. Actually, better yet, let's make a cherry pie and we will Mm -hmm. weave (laughs) all of these on top. Except honestly, the cherry pie is abuse and we don't want that cherry pie, but they are all interconnected. (laughs) But it is really like terrifyingly remarkable, right? To think about even just the ones we've gone over so far, how easy it is to integrate little pieces kind of of each one, right? And create, yeah, like this, this layered effect, you know, of just so many different types of manipulation and shame and coercion and abuse. Just, it's really, it's really remarkable. Um, And I think something again, for listeners out there, especially if you have not been in an abusive or unhealthy relationship, first off, we are stoked for you um, that you're part of that end of the statistic. But I think especially, right, to help put in a deeper context. Because like I said, it, until you're in it and until you've been through the cycle, it, it is sometimes hard to understand. But I think going through these and seeing how easy, unfortunately, it is to layer these together, I think really does become kind of an eye-opener, right, for for how these things are really played out. So the next piece we'll talk about is regulating the sexual relationship. So the abuser may dictate the sexual relationship by putting in place a routine or maybe making demands about certain things, such as how often intimacy will occur, perhaps what types of sexual activities are expected, and of course, again, like at what frequency, whether it's a certain amount of times per day, per week, whatever that looks like. Maybe a partner demanding to take sexual pictures or videos of you, refusing to use protection, or even tampering with birth control methods. And also, let me just clarify that in a relationship, if a partner has voiced certain desires or needs, uh, let's say they tell you they would enjoy getting a provocative photo from a partner here and there. And if this is mentioned in a way that's not demanding, right, it's not an expectation, there's no fear associated. There's no coercion or manipulation. Maybe it's just like two healthy partners discussing, you know, needs and desires, right? In order to build a better bond, right? And and within that sexual relationship, if that's all done in a way where someone does not feel manipulated or again, guilted, fearful to do those things, that's absolutely fine, right? Um, I just wanted to make that clear, right? Because I think there's a certain point here, it's about the intention. And that's really what it is for any abusive relationship. It's, It's done with intention, right? And that intention is just to kind of get what they want, have that power, have that control at the expense of a partner instead of just that conversation. So something I want to just throw out there as we're going through, no one was having any alarm bells going off about, you know, maybe discussions that have been had when it's not necessary. So the last tactic or sign we're going to talk about today is threatening children or pets. So this is another big tactic that we've often talked about in our other abuse episodes. It's 
I mean, deeply unsettling. Uh, and if abuser feels like other physical or emotional threats towards the victim aren't really working to, you know, gain control over you or take that power away from you, then they may move to start making threats against others, right, to accomplish that. And we all know how strong connections are with kids or with our pets and how powerful these threats can really be. Uh, I know personally for me, I don't have kids, but I have pets. I have my little bunnies laying right behind me being perfect angels. If anyone ever threatened them and said, listen, you have to do this for me or something really bad is going to happen, best believe I'm going to listen and comply with them, right? Like I'm going to do everything in my power can not only imagine that feeling for children, right? Like my own children. I can vouch for that, that Lisa would do anything for her bunnies. She took them cross country <laughs> with her. I did. <laughs> I got them a memory foam mattress pad um, <laughs> just to go under their crate so they had less shock, right, happening in the car. Um, but really, though, right, like we're going to do anything for other people we love and care about or our pets that we love and care about. Um, so maybe they are making violent threats against the kids or the pets. Maybe they even threaten to call social services to say that, yeah, you've been abusing or neglecting the kids, right? Kind of threatening to get them taken away or even threatening to take the pets to the shelter, right? Or I'm going to call animal control. And so they're going to come and take those pets from you. Maybe they're going to intimidate by threatening to make important decisions for the children without the consent of that other parent, uh, or even threatening to take the kids and go, or even get rid of the pet, right? Like I'll, I'll literally lock him outside or I'll put them out in the woods. You never see them again. And again, that's awful uh, to even think about, but these are things that, yeah, are going to maintain a lot of power and control over that victim. So why is it so hard for victims to recognize if they're in this situation? We hear about all of these tactics, and from the outside looking in, you might be thinking, okay, duh, this is an unhealthy, abusive relationship. It's often so hard to recognize because of the lack of physical violence and yeah. the slow build, slow escalation that happens over time, so you don't even recognize or know you are in it. And about that part of the lack of physical violence Part of my story is that I saw domestic violence in my home when I was in high school, and that caused me to later get into my own abusive relationship. But while it was going on in my household, I didn't think that it was domestic violence until there was physical violence. I thought everything leading up to that for the multiple years that led up to the physical violent event was just a bad relationship, was just like, eh, not yeah. the greatest guy, but it's not domestic violence because there's no bruises. Right. Now, here I am today in my job, and that's why I will do this work until there are no more victims of domestic violence because it's so important to me that people realize it is abusive before mm -hmm. it gets to that physical violence. Yeah, such a common misconception. Yes. All right. So stepping off of my soapbox from that real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Victims usually tend to continue to give while abusers tend to continually take. So the boundaries of what's acceptable get pushed further and further in these situations. The boundaries are compromised so slowly and subtly that by the time they are pushed to an extreme limit, 
that behavior has become so normalized or the victim may feel that they are causing it. When the abuser apologizes or said it'll be different in the future, it's often accepted because of those loose boundaries, the minimization, or maybe through love bombing or positively manipulating them back into the relationship, you know, buy them the candy, buy them the flowers, whatever gets them. I had one relationship where I had so many pieces of random jewelry that were used as the tactic to get back. And when I moved from a place, I literally left all that jewelry in the house when I moved. I wanted nothing to do with it. (laughs) (laughs) Let the realtor, whoever, do make the choice with that. But it was gone (laughs) from my life. If a victim has become aware that they are being coercively controlled, here are some tips on how to leave that situation in a safe way. Maintain communication with your support system whenever possible. Get in contact with a domestic violence hotline or agency to talk or get more info safely. Practice how to get out safely, and this is something that a domestic violence advocate can help you with. Make sure to practice or go over this routine often, especially if you have kids. Things are constantly changing you to make sure that your plan is up to date. Uh, Speaking of a plan, have a safety plan. We have a full episode on safety plans to check out more info on that. A domestic violence advocate will also be able to walk you through this process as well. See all the things that we can do for people. I love Mm -hmm. it. We are here for you. And of course, if you are in immediate danger, always call 911. Domestic violence hotlines are available if there isn't a threat to you or a loved one's immediate health or well-being. You can always call the Violence Free at 530-544-4444, and we will have some other hotlines and text lines linked below. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of things linked below for anyone who wants to reach out, have a conversation. Uh, If you're in the Tahoe area, you can always reach out to us at Live Violence Free. That's what we are here for. Uh, There'll be kind of a directory down below or the national hotline where you can call and figure out the agency closest to you that could provide you with support. But this was just a, a lot to unpack today. And again, I think we did a really good job kind of covering a lot of different really important bases. But again, this is really complex. There's so much that goes into this. There's definitely other little types of manipulation, examples, types of abuse and how that can be played out that we didn't really even get to, right? Just covering all that we have. But I think it's just really important for everyone to know that, again, these relationships, it's not as easy as some may think they are looking from the outside. I think it's really crucial to understand these steps and be able to just kind of see the bigger picture on um, what really happens in these relationships and how, you know, this really starts to impact that victim enough where, yeah, they may stay in the relationship or they have fears for their safety. There's also a lot of reasons why victims do stay in relationships. We also have a great episode called Should I Stay or Should I Go? when we discuss all of that, if you're interested to hear more. But yeah, I'm just happy that we at least started to really unpack this, right? I think this was a great kickoff for Domestic Violence Awareness Month, something we can absolutely come back and revisit. There's a lot more, again, we could have gone over. But with all of that being said, I think this is a perfect time to take a few breaths together because, again, this has been a lot. And I just wanted to walk us through a really simple 
just a little breathing exercise that incorporates some self-esteem boosting, some, you know, time to quiet kind of negative self-talk that could be going on because we know that is really pervasive in a lot of these coercive control relationships and also I think a good tool in the toolkit of anyone out there. So if you are willing and able to take on this meditation at this time, I invite you to get yourself into a comfortable position, sitting, laying, standing, whatever it looks like for you. If you are sitting, I invite you to ground your feet into the floor, really feel that connection. And I want you to start taking slow meditative breath, which is deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. Either find a spot in the room to focus on or gently close your eyes if it's comfortable. Continue with slow, deep breaths in through your nose and out through your mouth. Just start to notice all of your points of contact, your feet with the floor. Notice how your body feels sitting in that seat or if you're laying down. Quickly scan your body for any signs of tension. Check in with your jaw, is it clenched? Are your eyebrows furrowed? Are your shoulders stiff? Are your hands clenched? Do your own scan and see if there's any parts of your body that you can let go of some tension. Find a rhythm with your breathing. Think about it as a circle. Deep breath in and deep breath out. Start to notice the rise and fall of your chest or your belly as you complete these breath cycles. Start to bring some awareness to your thoughts In this moment, what remains on your mind? Allow this to be a moment without judgment to simply be aware of the thoughts that are coming up. If you do have negative thoughts, simply let them go with your exhale. Right now you're teaching yourself to be kind to your mind. On your inhales, try to find moments of self-compassion. Think about loving connection we have in our lives. Breathe in goodness with every deep inhale.
When, with your next inhale, remind yourself, I am resilient. On your next inhale, repeat to yourself, I am enough. Now that you've had a few breaths with these mantras, on your next inhale, I want you to fill your lungs, take the deepest breath you can, and hold for two seconds before a big exhale out. And one last time, deep breath in, expand your lungs all the way, hold for a count of two, and let go on this exhale. can spend as much time here in this space as you would like, even pause, continue to breathe, or I invite you to just slowly revert back to normal breathing, start to slowly wake the body up, wiggle a bit in your seat, your fingers and your toes, and just come back into the room. I hope you all enjoy that little breath work, that moment of relaxation, especially after this very deep talk we've had today. So Bree, do you have any, any last thoughts? Thank you for that meditation first, you know, with parenting, sometimes we forget to stop and take that moment for ourselves. And I was even having some to-do lists start popping up in my head. And I said, no, you don't (laughs) have to have that figured out. And then the next five minutes, just take this time for yourself. So thank you. I think on this topic, it's so important. I know we've said it multiple times throughout this episode to think about how people might not know that this is going on while it is going on with them. And it plays into that. Why didn't she just leave? Why didn't she just recognize this? You know, even Mm -hmm. working in the domestic violence field, we can provide this education to the people that we're working with, but it's theirs to do with what they see fit and what they know is safest in their relationship at that time. Mm-hmm. if they recognize any of it at all, even us who are quote unquote experts in this, when we talk with people who are actively experiencing this, it's not always possible for them to realize it until they somehow hopefully safely get out of that relationship. So it's so important to keep that in mind that we can't go around preaching, oh, this is what you're doing. Why are you still in this relationship? Yeah, We present this information and is theirs to choose what to do with it. Yeah. I'm really happy you brought that up. And a a final thought, so to speak, that I will end also on today. Um, And I've said this before too, this example, but I think it's, it's a really good example in terms of like kind of understanding the feeling or again, how it could happen is that being in a violent relationship, um, it almost feels like you are dropped in a pot of water on the stove, right? But the beginning of that relationship, the heat's not turned on. So you're just in this pot of water, everything is fine. 
And then gradually, the heat begins to be turned up, right? Which is maybe the red flags or that tension phase we talk about, like unhealthy things happening and kind of getting into this dark space, like that little internal alarm's going off, right? But yeah, we've been in the pot. um, And now it might be getting a little hotter, but we're saying, okay, no, like this is fine and I can adjust to this. And, you know, I'll just move around in certain ways to make myself more comfortable and keep myself from, you know, feeling the heat of this. And then suddenly it's like the pot of water is just boiling, right? And at that point, we're in it. And so it's really hard to figure out how do I safely get out of here, right? Like there's there's kind of no safe exit I can see. And, you know, and I, I remember hearing that and just being like, wow, because um, mm-hmm. being in the situations I have been in and, you know, violent or unhealthy relationships myself and, and a lot like you not really recognizing at the time if it wasn't physical that, you know, things were still not okay. Like, I think when I heard that it was such a good, like visual example, right? Um, or just a really great way to kind of make that into a metaphor that I think is really tangible for a lot of people that haven't been in it. And so, yeah, I'm just really appreciative to all of our listeners taking time today and checking in, learning more about this. Uh, we are going to have so much material down in the resources below. I've linked books on the topic, articles, videos. I mean, just so much information to better understand coercive control because it is so complex. Again, we have a lot of other episodes such as types of domestic violence abuse, gaslighting, dynamics of domestic violence to learn even further and really help you kind of kick off and celebrate this month with us. If you'd like to support Domestic Violence Awareness Month on your own, you can always, first and foremost, rock the color purple, since that is the awareness color of the month. You can even post to social media, especially if you're rocking purple, with hashtag DVAM, which of course stands for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. But all in all, we just really appreciate you taking time to learn about this today, becoming more informed, because education, it's really one of the biggest driving forces for how we combat these types of issues and how we really genuinely help survivors and victims out there, right? And getting through this. And so just stay tuned for more domestic violence content coming throughout the month. And we hope you will join us for our next conversation.